Well, the series is called Erase and Rewind, and it's about this ability that God's given us to change our mind. Let me show you how important it is. There's an article, well, actually, it was a documentary done back in 2012, and it was called Happiness. And one of the featured characters in the documentary was this fellow. We have a picture of him. His name is Manoj Singh. And he's a rickshaw driver in India, or I guess you call him a driver, a puller. <laughs> uh, and this was his statement. He said, I am not poor, but I'm the richest person. Now, let me tell you a little bit more about Manoj. He is married. He has three children. He lives in a one-room building that is just uh, the remaining corrugated, pieces of corrugated throwaway, uh, rusted, covered with a tarp. The tarp kind of holds it together. He has no running water. He has no electricity. Needless to say, he has no car. Uh, his children don't have any real reason to believe that they'll have a great education in the future. He has no health care system. He, if he gets sick, if they have a turn back in the economy or something like that, he has no security whatsoever. He has no savings. He has none of these things. And yet... He kept insisting about how happy he and his family were. He said sometimes at night, they only have a handful of rice each to eat, but they have a little salt to put on it, so that kind of makes it enough. Now, I want you to think for a minute. Imagine if me or you today, we lost our economic base to the point that you and I had to live in a place that didn't have electricity, no electricity, didn't have indoor plumbing. The weather penetrated it. His little shack, every time the monsoon season comes, they get soaking wet, and that's just the way it is. Would you, would I, be happy? Would, would we be able to be happy? What does it take to cause me, you, to be unhappy? And is there a necessary cause and effect? Or does Manoj Singh, is he just a fool? Is he just out of touch with reality? Or, or is it possible that we're the fools? Because we think that it's impossible to be happy without certain sets of circumstances. This entire series, Erase and Rewind, it's, it's about this tremendous capacity that God has given us to change these things, to change our minds, to change the way we think, to change our life at any time in our life. This is the extraordinary thing. I don't care how old you are today. You might be the oldest person in this room. You may have been stuck in the rut that you're in for your entire life, 80 years, 90 years, whatever it is. You absolutely can change. You have a God-given capacity to change your entire life for the rest of your life, whatever it is. And that works the same way for you that are younger as well. And it's really wise for us to occasionally stop and assess the rut that our life is in and make sure it's the rut that we want to stay in for a time. Let me start by sharing a word with you from the New Testament. That's a Greek word. The New Testament was written in Koine or Common Greek. And the word metanoia, it's used 58 times in the New Testament. And it's generally translated repent or repentance. And what the word actually meant in the Koine or common Greek of the time, it meant to change one's mind, 
based on new insight. Now this word has been sort of distorted by churches and the word repentance or to repent, it's kind of been attached to these notions that you feel sorry about your sins, you mourn for your sins, or in some churches you even do some penance. You know, you may say certain prayers a number of times or something like that, but that is never ever the way the word that is used in the New Testament. That is not the way Jesus understood it or used it, and he at one point urged people to repent. He said that all people need to repent, meaning they needed to change their minds based on new information. And this is something we take for granted. It is an extraordinary capacity that God has given to us because we are made in his image. We can change our minds and we can change our lives. We can change, we're going to talk about it today, we can change our perspectives. Last week I introduced a little chart uh, to you and it went like this, the transformation cycle. And you have to understand that the purpose of my existence and your existence, your purpose in life, my purpose, your God-given purpose, my God-given purpose is to become like Christ, like Jesus Christ. We were made by him, we were made for him. Life doesn't cohere until we are united with him. And we are meant in this life to have a constant growth where we're becoming more like Christ. If we're measuring our bank account or if we're measuring our savings or if we're measuring our successes or if we're measuring our popularity, we're measuring in the wrong place because God is going to measure around our hearts and around the actual content of our character. Nothing else is going to matter. And he has given us the capacity to become extraordinarily beautiful, generous, giving, caring, life-changing people. And if we miss that, it's not because God didn't want it for us so badly. So here's this cycle. Here's the way it works. Whoop, we, we really want it to stay there. <laughs> nope, nope, nope. We just want to stay right there. All right. The cycle, the transformation cycle goes like this. God gives revelation. He gives information that we can't acquire. Then that brings to us illumination. We start seeing life differently. Now, we come to a fork in the road. Now that we have this illumination, does it inspire us? Do we get excited about it? Or do we reject it? We say, you know, I don't really want to deal with that. Now, that's, that's the, for, um, the, the place where conversion either happens or doesn't happen. Okay, and then after that comes motivation and habituation where I'm applying it to my life in every area. And then finally transformation. God is the one that designed this process. It's his transformation process. It's his growth and development process. Let me break it down for you one more time. So here we have revelation, God-given new information. We receive information about God through creation. We see its complexity, its vastness. We know that it took a, a great mind to design it. But we see God's, see God's character mostly in the revelation he's given in Christ. It's expanded in the Bible. So this is revelation. We can't get this information on our own. God has to supply it from the outside. That brings illumination. I see life differently from God's expanded eternal perspective. Now, now that I'm illuminated, what does it do to me inside? That's where inspiration comes in or rejection. If I like what I see, it resonates, I'm moved, I'm excited positively, I'm now energized. I'm inspired by this new revelation about God. I know the truth about God, I know the truth about life, and I like what I'm finding. Or I don't like what I'm finding. And I'm uninterested in it. And I reject it. That's the difference between conversion, truly one that returns to their creator, Christ in trust, or one that does not. Let's go on to the second part of this. 
if I'm inspired by what I find, then this motivates me. I want to partake of this Christ-like development cycle. I want to pursue it. I want to possess this new life. That then leads to habituation, concrete, visible, tangible changes in my life, without which I'm just playing at a game, deceiving myself, dabbling in religion. Habituation, I determined to bring each area of my life under the influences of this new truth. Why? Because I want to, not because I'm afraid, not because I'm trying to get a reward, not because I'm trying to earn my way to heaven. I have been convinced from the inside out, this is truth, this is good, this is beautiful, this is desirable. I want to be like Christ. I believe this is the only way life works. And now I am convinced from the inside out and I'm motivated and I'm changing. I'm putting it into action in every part of my life. That then ultimately in time brings transformation. My core moral motivation is formed around this truth. My beliefs, my values, decisions, and feelings are all being progressively modified by this truth. That's the transformation cycle. Now, I hope that each of us can take a look at our life and we can see that, you know, I'm in that cycle. I'm in that transformation cycle. That's a good thing. That's where God wants us. Today, we're going to look at a part of this um, thing that God has given us the ability to change our minds about, and that's our perspective. As you and I sit here today, we all have a perspective. We have a worldview. We have a belief system, what we believe about God, what we believe about life, what we believe about people. And that perspective, it, it completely, for the most part, governs the way we feel about our lives. Uh, whether we're happy like Manoj Singh, in dire circumstances or whether we're unhappy although our circumstances might be very very good so we're going to go to kind of an unusual text this morning it's uh it'll be page 410 in those bibles near you and i do want you to turn there and follow with me it's uh the book of second kings and we're going to look at chapter six and we're going to pick up in verse eight and just go through verse 18 but when you come here a little historical background the kingdom of Israel has been divided now for about 64 years and the northern kingdom which is called Israel it has a series of 19 kings none of them are godly you're in the uh, ninth king when you come to this particular portion of scripture and it's a king named Jehoram doesn't figure into it in a big way but it's it's a time in Israel's history where the 10 northern tribes of Israel, there were 12 tribes of Israel, just like we have 50 states. There were 12 tribes of Israel. The 10 northern tribes had completely turned away from God. And God keeps in love reaching out to them. He keeps sending prophets to them. And so that's where we're at. So let's go to chapter 6, verse 8. And we're going to read about a guy named Elisha. It says, now the king of Syria was at war with Israel. Isn't it interesting? We have these same nations today that are antagonistically postured toward one another. The king of Syria was at war with Israel. He consulted his advisors who said, invade at such and such a place. But the prophet sent his message to the king of Israel. Make sure you don't pass through this place because Syria is invading there. So the king of Israel sent a message to the palace, um, excuse me, to the place the prophet had pointed out warning it to be on guard. This happened on several occasions. So what it is, is every time Syria is ready to attack, God reveals to Elisha the prophet where the attack is going to take place. He tells the king of Israel, don't go there. Don't fall into the trap. That's what's been happening. Verse 11. This made the king of Syria upset. So he summoned his advisors and he said to them, one of us must be helping the king of Israel. 
One of his advisors said, No, my master, O king. The prophet Elisha, who lives in Israel, keeps telling the king of Israel the things you say in your bedroom. The king ordered, Go find out where he is so I can send some men to capture him. The king was told he's in Dothan. So he sent horses and chariots along there with a what? A good-sized army. They arrived during the night and they surrounded the city. So now they have Elisha the prophet trapped in the city. The prophet's attendant got up in the early morning. When he went outside, there was an army surrounding the city along with horses and chariots. He said to Elisha, Oh no, my master, what will we do? He replied, Don't be afraid, for our side outnumbers them. Pause there for a minute. So here's Elisha's servant. He wakes up in the morning. He sees this army surrounding the city. He knows they've come to capture Elijah. And he's in absolute panic because his perspective at this point is just a natural perspective. He's looking at things from a time-bound, sense-governed perspective, and he sees the end of his life, probably. Now, I want to pause here for a minute because I want to ask you a question. Is there something that's terribly upsetting to you in your life? Maybe it's been going on for months, maybe for years, maybe it just happened this week, but there's something. There's something. And when you see it, when you look at it, it takes all your peace away. It fills you with a feeling of turmoil, just like this servant. He looked, and everything that he could see, this just looked bad. And it took away his peace. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. But I want you to think about it. That your turmoil, your lack of peace, this servant's lack of peace, is based on your perspective. Let's read on and see what happens. Verse 17. Then Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so he can see. The Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw the hill was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, these chariots of fire... This is the second time we see them in Scripture. Bear with me. You're in the book of 2 Kings. Turn back to your left to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, verse 11, go there with me if you will. Elisha was sort of an apprentice to another prophet called Elijah. They're really confusing their names. There was Elijah was the original prophet, and Elisha was sort of his apprentice. This shows us how Elijah left this life, this verse. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 11. As they were walking along and talking, this is Elijah and Elisha, suddenly a fiery chariot pulled by fiery horses appeared. They went between Elijah and Elisha, and Elijah went up to heaven in a what? Windstorm. Other translations say whirlwind. We read in chapter 6, the servant, got, uh, Elisha prays, open his eyes. And when the servant's eyes are open, he sees these same things. These chariots of fire, they're evidently in the sky. For you that are interested, I'm going to give you something to write down. You can study this on your own. So, so if you're really interested, you want to learn a mystery, write, jot these verses down right quick while I give them to you. 
Jot down Psalm 68, verse 17. Psalm 68, 17. Jot down Isaiah 66, verse 15 and 16. And then jot down Matthew 24, verse 30 and 31. I could give you more, but I'll leave it at that. If you want to find out a really interesting mystery, uh, look at this. How many of you have ever heard uh, church people use the word rapture? Can I see your hands? Rapture, yeah. It, it's talking about that time when Jesus returns and those that are still living and breathing when he returns who belong to him are somehow transported up to meet him in the air. I'll just stop there. So anyway, he prays to open his eyes and he sees these chariots of fire. Now the chariot of fire took Elijah up into the sky, into the chariot of fire, and he was no more. He never died. Elijah and Enoch are the only people in Scripture who didn't die. So Elisha and his servant now can see these things. So let's go back to verse 18. As they approached, excuse me, as they approached him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike these people with blindness. So he, he prays that his servant's eyes can be open. He prays that the enemy soldier's eyes will be closed. It's kind of ironic. The Lord struck them with blindness as Elijah, Elisha requested. Then Elisha said to them, this is not the right road or city. Follow me and I will lead you to the man you're looking for. And he led him to Samaria, which was the center of the kingdom of Israel. What, what happens after this he leads this whole army. They're blinded now. He leads the whole army. They go back to Israel. And when the king of Israel, Jehoram, sees him, he says, my master, my master, should we, should we pounce on him and kill him? And Elisha says, no. He says, feed him. Give him some food. And he gives them their sight back. They have a big feast. And it says, from that point on, Syria didn't attack Israel anymore. Syrians get a witness that there's a true God who who functions in the fourth dimension, Israel has their faith greatly strengthened that even though they have abandoned God and they are falling further and further from him, he is still lovingly pursuing them, showing them that he ever is present in that fourth dimension is just a bit beyond our ability to comprehend, unless that is, God opens their eyes. All right, it's one of those supernatural miraculous stories about things that are real but are unseen. Well, is that just fanciful? Is that just foolish? Or, or are there things that really matter that for many, many centuries people couldn't see? How many here know that tuberculosis still kills about 1.3 million people a year? How many knew that? Can I see your hands? And yet, it's invisibly communicated. It's communicated through coughing or sneezing, perhaps even something that somebody sneezed on and touched. Uh, back in 1918, there was the Spanish flu. It was called the influenza uh, crisis. Do you happen to know how many people died from the flu, the common flu in 1918? Anybody want to wager a guess? Go ahead. It was 50. 50. 50 million people died from this flu. And yet it was invisible. It was transmitted in the air, but invisible. Why should you be afraid of anything invisible? Why should you believe in anything invisible? How many of you have ever received an x-ray? Can I see your hands? Okay. Now, before they give you the x-ray, why do they give you that heavy cape? Why? That lead cape. How many have received the lead cape? Yes. <laughs> when they push the button and give you the x-ray, do you see anything? Do you feel anything? 
Do you see an x-ray going through the air, you know? Yeah. No, but you have this lead, this lead cape. Are they just mocking us? I mean, because we can't see anything. But we have learned that there are some invisible things that can cause great harm. So the notion that the miraculous or invisible things or a fourth dimension beyond our sight couldn't exist, well, that's not really something that we should be considering ridiculous today. In fact, there are many physicists that believe there are 11 dimensions or, or 10 for sure in string theory. So here's this experience where God asked that his servant's eyes would be open. But the point that I'm trying to make to you is this. The man was in abject turmoil he was unhappy. He was in panic. He thought his life was headed for a very, very bad experience until his eyes were opened. And he saw that God was still there. God was present. God was able to protect him. And in this case, of course, he does. So that's something for us to tuck away. Let me share a couple verses with you. Look at this one from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It says, but a person who denies spiritual realities, invisible realities, fourth dimensional realities. A person who denies spiritual realities will not accept the things that come through the Spirit of God. They all sound like what? Foolishness to him. I mean, God is constantly giving fragmentary revelation of the fourth dimension. But people that are sense-governed, you know, if I can't see it, feel it, taste it, touch it, smell it, and so forth, they think it's foolishness goes on he is incapable the person that rejects the the revelation of God he is incapable of grasping them because they are disseminated discerned and valued by the spirit it takes our spiritual faculties to intuit the reality of these spiritual things where God still opens our eyes the eyes of our spirit our God enlightened reasoning and our conscience and our and our moral faculties and we sense these spiritual things that are revealed in Scripture to be true and to be real. Let me share one more verse with you that shows the difference between one's perspective being natural and one's perspective on life being spiritual. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, speaking of Christ here, it says, Since all his children have flesh and blood, so Jesus became human to fully identify with us. It goes on. He did this so that he could experience death and annihilate the effects of the intimidating accuser. In other translations, it's called the devil. He's called the accuser of the brothers. So Jesus' death was meant to nullify or annihilate the effects of the intimidating accuser or Satan who holds against us the power of death. What does that mean? How does Satan use the power of death against us? It goes on. By embracing death, Jesus sets free those who live their entire lives in bondage to the tormenting dread of what? And this is how Satan uses death. When we are bound by the fear of death, whether we know it or don't know it, we are very vulnerable to living foolishly and self-destructively. I put together a little, little chart here for you. And let me just show you the difference. Um, okay, here's, here's the natural perspective. Natural perspective. I'm, I'm bound by time. I know that I'm here now. I don't know how long I'm going to be here. 
I just know that sooner or later my life will end. That's death. I'm sense governed. I, if I can't see it, feel it, taste it, touch it, smell it, I don't know for sure that it exists. And I'm driven by the fear of death. What do I mean driven by the fear of death? Because I don't know when my life is ever going to end, my tendency, our tendency globally is that first of all, I pursue self-preservation. I try to keep alive as long as I can. I am driven to first and foremost pursue keeping myself alive. And then secondly, because I don't know when I'm going to die, and I don't know who I am, I don't know why I'm here, I don't know where I came from, I don't know where I'm going, I don't know the meaning of life, I don't know that there's anything in another dimension beyond this life, because of that, I live fatalistically, I tend to want to get all the pleasure, all the desirable experiences I can, as fast as I can, as long as I can, because that's it. What is the purpose of life other than that? that? That's all there is, as far as my senses tell me. I don't see life beyond death. I see people's spirits and souls leaving their body, their body's dead. As far as I know, that's the end of them with my senses that is and so this fatalistic uh, feeling of being driven by the fear of death it makes us live stupidly we've all heard people say you know you only go around once man you got to get all you can you got to get all the gusto you can gotta get your bucket list man you know because that's it that's all there is and it makes us live fatalistically and foolishly the fear of death but Jesus died identifying with us, showing us that, that he could rise from the grave. He promised he would raise from the grave all who would put their trust in him. And that was meant to cause us to no longer live with the fear of death, which would bring this perspective, the spiritual perspective. Now look at the difference. The natural perspective, it's time-bound. The spiritual is eternal. It's unlimited. It means I see myself as an eternal being, which means I can slow down a little bit. Don't have to get it all in this life. Can't get it all in this life. Revelation governed. Instead of my senses governing what is real to me, revelation, what God says is real, what he shows me from the fourth dimension, brings it into the third dimension, tells me it's real. That now governs my perspective. And I'm driven by the certainty of what? Everlasting life. That's very different than being driven by the fear of death. The certainty of everlasting life allows me, like I said a minute ago, to slow down and to say, wait a minute, this life is a developmental journey. I'm here to become more like Christ. I'm here to do Christ-like things for others. I'm here to learn to love. I'm here to be a servant. I'm here to become a son or a daughter of God. These are the things that matter most. I want to make sure that the values in my life are eternally driven, not time-driven, because at the end of life, unless they are eternal values, we're going to have a lot of regret. And I'm not trying to say that we should be fearful. I'm just saying we're going, to, we're going to have one of those moments where we say, man, I blew my life. I wasted it. I pursued and worried about and stewed over and argued over and fought for things that really didn't matter. Didn't matter much at all. So there's the difference between a fourth dimensional perspective on life and a three dimensional perspective on life. You ever thought about dimensions? It, it kind of tangles my brain up a little bit, but let, let me give you something to help me. Maybe this will help you. Uh, 
There are these fish that live in super, super deep water, you know, like the Mariana Trench deep, like seven miles down deep. And they're alive. They're living down there. But they're living in darkness. It's all dark. There's no light that can get in there. And so let's just pretend that you're a Mariana dark, deep fish. And you're talking to your fish buddies. And one of your fish buddies is a little bit of a philosopher, kind of scientific bent. And your scientific bent philosopher fish buddy says to you one day, you know, I think there's other worlds, other dimensions right on top of this one. Other beings different than us. They, they live completely different. They're, they're far superior to us. And you say, are you, why are you so stupid? Where do you get these ideas? Look around you. You're surrounded by water and darkness. This is, this is it. This is all there is. And you're, you're philosopher, scientific guy. No, no, no. I just, I just have this theory. There's, there's another world right on top of ours. And, and, and you say, but wait a minute. If it's, if it's here, why can't I see it? Why can't, why? You just are stupid to believe that invisible nonsense. Why can't I see it? Another world on top of world. That, that's ridiculous. But then let's say I go down in a bathyscaphe and, you know, that's one of these, these uh, high pressure, you know, resistant, uh, you know, deep sea diving mechanisms. And I go down there and I toss out a net and I catch, I catch the philosophical, scientific minded uh, fish and I bring him to the surface. I somehow keep him alive. Pressure doesn't kill him. Light doesn't kill him. All that kind of thing. And I say, come on with me, man. And I take him in my car and I show him around and... I let him watch my big screen TV and I say, watch this. I flip a switch and lights go on and off and my air conditioning, oh, he's cold and then he's warm and, and I'm just wowing him. He's like, you're, you're magical. You are, you must be God. Not really, not really. I just live in a different dimension. There's different laws. Like we take in air, we don't need water and you know, we, we move fast in cars, way too fast we move in cars. Um, we didn't believe there were such things. And so now, now the philosophical scientific mind of fish goes back down into the deep. I take him back. He goes back to his friend. He says, listen, I, I'm telling you everything I said is real. And you say, dude, you better get some, some stuff for your head, man. You're, 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 you're not right. You're not right. But he has seen a reality. Now, now what am I trying to say? This fourth dimension where spiritual entities live, where God functions, it fits right into our space. We just can't see it. It can penetrate our space, reveal its presence, and then move out of our space, and we don't even understand it. We have a guardian that God has put on our minds, on our spirits, so that we cannot on an ongoing basis see into the fourth dimension Elisha the prophet was given the ability because he was a prophet of God to at least on occasion see into the fourth dimension if you and I were to see into the fourth dimension all the time it, it would overwhelm our senses just like it would overwhelm that fish's sense, senses that's living in the dark deep to suddenly see a high tech society living on air like ours couldn't put it together it, it would blow our minds and so God gives us glimpses just enough evidence that's compelling, but not enough to ice our will where we have no, no choice about it. All right, so 
We've considered the natural perspective. The servant was first governed by the natural perspective, but when his eyes were open and he could see the spiritual perspective or from the spiritual perspective, he went from turmoil and a lack of peace to a place of peace and calm and confidence. How come you and I can't do that? Or why can't we do that? Why can't we have our spiritual eyes open, have our perspective, you know, just tilted around, focused a little bit so that maybe some of that turmoil, some of that dis-ease that we are feeling could suddenly be stabilized and we at least would still have calm and peace and clarity and objectivity and certainty even though our circumstances for the time may not be so good. Remember Manoj Singh. This guy is still pulling a rickshaw to this day in the smoldering heat of India in the monsoon seasons with abusive drunks that hire out his rickshaw. He talked about that. He goes home to that rusty shack that he and his three kids and his wife live in and occasionally they eat a handful of rice and he's happy. It's all about perspective. It's all about perspective. You and I can create our own misery. <laughs> and a lot of us do. A lot of us do it real regularly. A lot of us create misery for ourselves and others around us when there's absolutely no need. The servant was miserable. He was terrified. He was in panic. Life was awful. Elisha said, Lord, open his eyes that he could see from a spiritual perspective. I wonder what would happen if we started praying that simple prayer more regularly. What if each time we started feeling our blood pressure rising and that worry kicking in and that anger we start saying, Lord, open my eyes. I, I know I'm not seeing right. I'm not seeing it right. J.W. Tucker was an Assemblies of God missionary to the Congo. He first went to the Congo in 1939. All he wanted to do was lead people to Christ. He had the eternal perspective. He had the fourth dimensional perspective on life. He knew that death didn't end life. It was only the beginning of life. So he went to the Congo in 1939. He stayed there for 25 years. Then on November 24th, 1964, he was taken by rebels in the Congo. There was terrible turbulence in the Congo from 1960 to 1965. Great rebellions moving back and forth. The United States was involved. All the, the Russian and Chinese powers were involved trying to create havoc in this, this little country. And... Uh, these Congolese rebels grabbed this man who had dedicated 25 years of his life to lovingly serving the people of Congo. They, they took him and they bound him behind his back, him and about 65 other people, and they took him down to the Komomandi River, which was infested with crocodiles, and they knew it. And as these people were tied, they threw them in there and watched as the crocodiles feasted on them. And J.W. Tucker lost his life. Now, before, before he had been home for a time from the Congo, missionaries go and leave, and he knew the turmoil. He knew the turbulence was going on. And one of his friends, a man named Morris Plotz, told him, he said, don't go back. In fact, here, here's a quote. 
Morris Plot said, if you go, if you go in, he pleaded prophetically, you won't come out. That was his dear missionary friend. Tucker's response was, God didn't tell me I had to come out. He only told me I had to go in. And he died. And he left behind some children and a wife. But before we start feeling sorry for him, check out your perspective. The first Christian martyr, the first person that died because of their faith and their loyalty to Jesus was named was Stephen. He didn't deserve it at all. He was stoned to death. And he's a hero very much alive. J.W. Tucker is a hero very much alive. What perspective would you or I have had for him? Oh, sure, we should grieve. Of course we should grieve. Of course his family's going to miss him. But I can tell you, they went on serving Jesus because they knew that eternity is real. The fourth dimension is real. It governed their perspective in this life. And instead of havoc, it brought clarity and calm and objectivity. Listen to this verse from 1 Corinthians 2, verse 15. It says, the spiritual person, the person that's got a spiritual perspective, however, can evaluate everything. Yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone. For who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, the revelation that God has given to us about himself and about life. We can have the outlook, the perspective of Christ. It's given to us, and that's meant to have a stabilizing effect on us. In the book of Hebrews, once again, listen to these words. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Trusting is being confident of what we hope for and convinced about things what? things about we do not see we don't see molecules we don't see protons neutrons but we know they're real we don't see the viruses and the bacteria but we know they're real i could go on and on here's the scripture saying that and without eh, that was a little fast next time we'll go a little slower on that and without trusting it is impossible to what to be well-pleasing to God. If we don't trust God, he can't be pleased with us. He can't give us anything if we don't trust him. If we're not trusting and following Jesus, he cannot give us the life that we were designed to live. And without trusting, it is impossible to be well-pleasing to God because whoever approaches him must trust that he does exist and that he becomes a what? A rewarder to those who do what? Seek him out. Now, it didn't say to those who seek heaven. <laughs> how many of you know there's a lot of people seeking heaven that are not going? How many of you know that? Can I just see, see your hands? Yeah. Those who seek him, seek Jesus, are fit to be in the fourth dimension, and so they will go. But fourth dimensional people are meant to live with the perspective of the fourth dimension, the spiritual dimension, governing our lives now. So... If I could get some help, I have some people, don't panic uh, as to what you see, but we're going we're gonna to have some people pulling out a rope as fast as their little legs will carry them. They're going to pull this rope. And while they're pulling the rope, and you're wondering, what are we going to do with rope, Randy? <laughs> and they're moving fast with the rope, so fast, blinding fast, faster uh, with the rope. <laughs> We're going to do this so much better in the second service, man. We're, we're, going, to, we're going to be really fast. Um, you're thinking about what perspective governs your life most of the time. Now, this is a hard thing. 
We that have put our trust in Christ, our creator, we have returned to him. We've been reconciled to God. He's won our hearts. He's won our trust. We are his followers because we trust him entirely and we want to do his will more than we want to do our will. We have turned from our self-directed living. We have turned to him in trust and now we are fully devoted to wanting to live the way that he designed us to live. There we go. They're, they're getting on it now. So, we are those that are meant to live with the eternal perspective governing our behavior, our decision-making, our value system, the way we treat others and so forth. Now, who has the very end of the rope? There should be a little something on the end of the rope. Okay, the rope is still going around. The rope's got to go faster around. <laughs> We're going to do this so much better in the second service. Yeah, the sh little short hand movements. We're, we're going to do this may way better. Way better. It's still moving off the spool. There's a spool back there. Here we go. It's almost to its destiny. The rope has almost reached its destiny. Okay. Now, if you would, if you're near the rope, I want you to put your hands on the rope. Go ahead. It won't bite you. Go ahead. Grab the rope. Now, who has the very end of the rope? Back there. It should be a human being. <laughs> Do you notice something on the end of the rope? Please be something on the end of the rope. There is a piece of tape. About how big is that piece of tape? About an inch. How much rope do you think we have out here? It goes all the way around this entire auditorium. A lot. The rope, the rope represents eternity. Now, Jesus promised that those who put their trust in him become his followers. He will raise back up and they will dwell with him in a kingdom of righteous love for eternity. No more sickness, sorrow, pain, or death. And most of us in here might say we believe that. But here's the question we've got to ponder. Are we living with our hands on eternity or is the majority of our focus on the one inch piece of tape that represents our life? If you live to be 100 compared to eternity, it's a tiny piece of tape. Which causes our worry? Are we so focused on the fourth dimension that we don't get caught up in the worry and the futility of the third that's all I was trying to illustrate with this I'm going to get ready to close you in prayer and the people are going to lower the rope so that nobody trips on it when they go out <laughs> simple question what perspective really truly governs your life second question which perspective do you want to govern your life? Because you have the power of choice. You can change your mind. You can erase and you can rewind today. And you can say, I'm not going to live in the frenzy and the worry and the desperation of being governed by third dimensional perspective. I'm actually going to be one that becomes spiritually minded. 
And I'm going to keep checking on myself tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. I'm going to change, I'm going to change my mind and make sure I keep an eternal perspective on life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glimpses you give us of the unseen, the assurances you give us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came and lived and uh, suffered and died and then rose again to give us confidence. May your spirit stir our hearts that we will be willing to adjust our minds that we will live with your eternal perspective. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen.